This is Matt. And this is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Tony, I did it. You did it. Yay. For our listeners, that was like the second time I've ever done that because I am not good at that. Yep. If you're, uh, if you're looking at your phone, you'll notice fireworks going off. Like when you send a happy birthday or a congratulations message in a text mm-hmm. because Matt got through the introduction and... Yeah, I'm sure uh, most people will say it was bad, but that's okay. I'm, I'm baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah. All right. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. Yeah. You? Good. Uh, busy horror month here at WDWM Studios. <laughs> I've never said the initials before. No, I haven't either. WDWM. 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 A lot of stuff going on this month mm-hmm. in addition to... Doubling our workload. Mm-hmm. We're both in the throes of just stuff. Very lots busy. Lots of work. Yeah. Yeah. Work. Uh, pr- extra curric- Extra. Cr- fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> extra curriculars. Extra curricular. Matt's been drinking. Oh, God damn it's it. It's the only way he can get through Horror Month. Uh, yeah. Been doing a lot of improv lately. Yeah. How's yeah. it going? Good. That's good. Yeah. Had the, uh, the Providence Improv Fest was last month. Yeah. Here. And you hosted. Um, Hold on, it's coming to me. And you hosted uh, Mortified, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. For our, so tell our listeners, what's Mortified? Uh, so Mortified is a um, it's a comedic stage show where people get up and read uh, diaries, stories, poems, songs, things they wrote when they were teenagers, Sounds and mortifying. they never uh, and never expected <laughs> to um, you know ever be in like a theater reading it to. A, a an audience of strangers, but there they are. Um, there's chapters all over the country. For the last decade, I've been reading uh, in the the Boston show pretty regularly, uh, and for several years, uh, myself and the woman who produces the the Boston show talked about bringing it to Providence, and we finally made it happen. We got to put it up at the Columbus Theater, which is really exciting. It's um it's this really cool uh, historic theater in town that a few years ago was revived uh, by some. Uh, local musicians and uh yeah they they bring these really uh great music and comedy acts into town so to be able to not just participate in but to produce and and host a show at this theater that i love going to uh as an audience member so much it was really uh it was great Uh, it was a really successful night the crowd seemed really awesome the the lineup was really funny so what was the thing you read what was it about oh sure so i read um some passages from a a notebook that I was I was journaling in when I was uh, 14, 15, 16 years old. So a lot of stuff about uh, the first relationship I was in. Very naive. You know, or the, the relationship was very naive. And then I had these really like kind of raunchy and, and dark teenage angst-ridden nice. entries to complement it. Uh, yeah, it's pretty fun stuff. It's... Uh, it's a lot easier to do than it was when I started, that's for sure, in terms of sharing this stuff. Sure. I never kept a journal. I have lots of sketchbooks. Yeah. Um, so it'd be weird to go up there and just be like, hold up a sketchbook. Well, uh, one of the readers didn't have journals or anything. What he shared were character sheets and dungeon maps from oh, wow. his D&D group um, and these weird, these odd letters that he'd written to his uh, dad and his stepmom where he was... You know, writing in character as uh, 
an FBI agent. So there was all this like weird code and like he was just creating this sort of fiction to to get them to pay attention. It was that it, sounds yeah, great. It's really it's really it's really a fun time. There's a podcast, uh, the Mortified Podcast, that um, you should check out. They they record a lot of the shows, so you'll hear clips from the performances and then interviews with the people who are reading and kind of talking about where their headspace was when they wrote it. That's great. So yeah, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. I I lost count a long time ago how many times I have had to stop in the middle of saying what we do in the shadows when I tell people (laughs) what I'm reading in preparation for this. Have you seen the new What We Do in the Shadows show? Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, I won't spoil it for any listeners, but there's this great episode with tons of cameos, Mm -hmm. and it's really surprising and really funny. Uh, Check that out. Check out the original movie if you've never seen it. But this is something very different. Wildly unrelated. And to talk about it, we actually have a special guest with us here today. Yeah, so let's introduce her, and we'll get to it. All right, today we're joined by Emma Sarconi, who is the Reference Professional for Special Collections at Firestone Library at Princeton University. That sounds so uh, impressive and kind of intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) So, Emma, uh, what exactly do you do? So, so I work with rare books and and manuscript material at Princeton. So, Princeton um, has... I like to say, or we like to say, five millennia and five continents worth of cool stuff. Um, so we have everything from like cuneiform tablets to the Toni Morrison papers. And basically my job is to help people use it. So I answer questions from people um, all across the world about our collections. Um, one of the great things about Princeton Special Collections is that we're open to the public. So anybody can register as a reader and come in and use our things. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a Princeton community member. Um, You can just be a person. Um, As long as you have a photo or government issued ID, you can just come on in, Um, which is one of my favorite things about my job because um, I really believe that special collections are for everyone. Um, There's a librarian at Harvard who wrote an article that said, uh, you are special enough for special collections. And I really think that's true. So I help people from all walks of life, from all different places, use our things um, for whatever sort of research they're doing, whether it's an academic paper or genealogy work, or they're just a fan. Um, My job is to basically connect people to the things. Um, I teach a little bit, so we'll have classes come to our department to use our materials to enhance whatever they're talking about in their course. Um, And I also work on a whole bunch of special projects, mostly having to do with enhancing the voices of women in our collections. Uh, So, yeah, those are the many hats that I wear at Princeton. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, Thank you. Yeah. uh, So I assume that 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 Princeton is sort of uh, unusual in that the general public has access to all of these things. Um, Mm -hmm. What uh, can you talk a bit about why? Typically, those types of collections might have uh, a sort of barrier of entry. Uh, I, I mean, I assume it's because of a certain uh, the value associated with uh, some of the pieces in the collection. Or, um, yeah, if you could explain that a bit. Sure. So, um, it, it's barriers to entry for special collections are true for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one of the most prominent, I think, is that this is a 
this brand of librarianship, this kind of librarianship has only sort of recently been professionalized. So for a long time, Rare Books and Special Collections was sort of like an educated man's game. And for a long time, there was sort of the notion like, like the Morgan Library in New York is a beautiful museum, wonderful collection, but was the personal library of a very wealthy white man. Um, so f- that's sort of how this this sort of library was born. And that inherently is exclusive because it was just one person's collection. And I think for a long time, the profession was sort of trying to, was sort of upholding that tradition. Certainly, there are a lot of fears in the profession about the safety of our objects. And my job, you know, we have certain objects that are like in a box, in a locked case, in a locked room, in another locked room in a stairwell that requires a passcode, in a department that requires a flash ID. Safety is a very serious concern. And so I think that can cause barriers to entry. Sometimes you'll have, um, if you have a collection that's donated by a particular person, they might put stipulations like who can see it. So they might say like, I don't want my collection open to the general public. I only, I want it only open to certain people. And that is not as common today, but there's still some of those legacy contracts. So, um, and then there's just like cultural, there's the culture of the institution. So at Princeton, um, the culture of the institution is that we are a privileged space and we want to share that privilege with the public. But the British Library, which is technically open to the public, but the rare books, you need to have a, you need to have a letter from your academic advisor in order to go. So like if you're going to go do research at the British Library, you need to make sure you have this letter ahead of time. Sometimes you have to apply to be a reader and be approved before you show up. It really just depends on the ways in which that institution has decided to protect their things, whatever that means. Now, a lot of these books are are the contents of these books available in other are they available for in other methods of of like online kind of viewing kind of things or is it mostly Like, are people going here primarily to see these specific versions of these texts? So a lot of them, it it depends on what it is. So because we have material that spans a huge time period, if you're studying um, The Bluest Eye, right, by Toni Morrison, um, you can find that in any Barnes & Noble. But if you're interested in looking at Toni Morrison's personal copy, then you might be asking different questions. It just sort of depends on the questions that you're asking. We do have material in our collection that does not appear anywhere else. So things that are very old or um, man- a lot of manuscript material, right? Because so like we have books, but we also have people's letters and papers and ephemera and things like that. So that might not exist anywhere else or online, but it really depends on the questions that you're asking. So the work that I do as like a academic is very much based in treating book objects as sort of like historical documents themselves. So like we might have a copy of a collection of Shelley poems, Percy Byron Shelley. We might have a copy of his poems that you can find online, but our copy was owned by um, a prominent aristocratic 19th century woman. And she bound it in like a very particular binding from like a very particular binder. And so that 
you ask, you're just asking different questions. You know, I like to talk about the history of print as a history of choices. So whenever you're looking at a book, someone has made all of these choices in order to make that object. And often those choices have to do with either how much money they have, how much money they want. And, but people can do work sort of determining those choices and figuring them out and, and figuring out what you can learn from them. So um, all of our books are unique in some way, shape or form beyond the text. So it almost seems kind of like like an art gallery in a sense where, you know, I could buy a Van Gogh print in many places, but like when you go to the Louvre and you see the Mona Lisa in that room and it's kind of isolated by itself, it's a whole other experience. Exactly. There's like a co- there's a context to all of these um, famous works and it's it can be really about, you know, just delving into that context more than just the words on the page. I follow you on on Instagram, and, and you <laughs> you frequently post Instagram stories um, of of you going through some of these books, and there's like this infectious kind of nerdy yeah. glee <laughs> with which you kind of document the pages. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty great. Uh, Thank is, you. <laughs> is there any particular um, books or, or or manuscripts that you've gone through that that have been the most I don't know fulfilling or rewarding or exciting for you? I mean, the great thing about my job is that I sort of get to come across these items all the time. And one of the biggest questions that people ask me when they hear what my job is, is like, either what's the rarest thing in your collection or like, what's the coolest thing in your collection, which is a really hard thing for me to answer. Because like I said, everything we have is unique in one way, shape or form. So like everything is rare. And what I think is cool is very different than what other people might think is cool. So you know, when people ask me that question, I usually talk about, um, at Princeton, we have a copy of the Declaration of Independence, like an original printing. So that's pretty cool. And immediately that kind of talks to you about what kind of things we have. Um, and that's something that everyone can sort of on some level recognize as being rare, but the things that always get me excited are, um, I, I really like to see human connection in books. Um, and manuscripts. So one of the things, and I shared this on Instagram, was that um, we have a Western Americana collection at Princeton. So like, it contains a a lot of it contains some material having to do with the movement West. You know, but there's a lot of stuff having to do with colonization of Native American lands, but also uh, Mormonism and things like and the Gold Rush. And so. I, we got a reference question, so we got an email from a patron asking why we had her great grandfather's papers in our in our library. And I pulled this collection. It was very small. It was just a couple of folders, and it was letters from a man who was from Providence, Rhode Island, um, which is where I used to live, who decided to move west to California, where I grew up. So there's this like personal connection for me, but then there was also um, this element of these were the letters that his family in Rhode Island sent him, which is like pretty unusual for these gold rush stories. Often we don't have the letters that are sent to prospectors. We have the letters sent from prospectors because like the prospectors were living a life where they probably were keeping these letters on them. But in this case, we did have them. So you have all these letters from these family members in Providence, and they were mostly women, basically being like, what the hell, dude? Where'd you go? Like, we haven't heard from you in three years. Like, where are you? 
And so we had all these letters from his family, but we also had all these artifacts um, that he had on his person. So we had uh, a diary of his that was tracking where he was, where he was, like how he got West. And at the back, it included a, um, it included a list from the general store of all the things he was buying. So you could also sort of see um, what kind of life he was living. You know, it started off where for a while you could tell it was pretty hard going because it was like, he was only buying like crackers. Like it would be like, like you would see his charge list and it would be like crackers, cheese, crackers, 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 tobacco, crackers, crackers. And then, you know, I think things kind of got better for him because suddenly it was like crackers, cheese, bacon, you know, <laughs> crackers, cheese, bacon, cookies. Like he, his life sort of, you kind of found that his life improved. And then, um, and then at the end you learned that the reason that he wasn't writing to his family anymore is because he was living in Carson city, Nevada. And he was like practically blind and we don't know why, but like that collection was very small and very regular, like regular in a lot of ways. And it's, it's hard to explain to people like one, it's kind of a long story, but I think it's also hard to explain to people when they say like, what's the coolest thing you've seen, why that's so cool. But it really is because this collection tells a very personal story. And whenever I come across a book that tells a really personal story in some way, shape or form, um, it really resonates with me. Um, you know, this work that I do is so based in, being a keeper of humanity in a way, you know, the archive and the special collection is very biased in a lot of ways. You know, you'll hear people talking about how, you know, we, we've historically much like the way the sort of profession has been molded by wealthy white men, like the collections have been molded by wealthy white men. And so there is a bias in the archive, but there are also these glimmers of there are lots of instances of real people. And so the work I try and do is to bring out those voices and enhance them and try and sort of take the bias away in a certain way. But I just love anytime I come across anything that feels sort of like a window into someone else's life or a window into another time. Um, it's so hard to put my finger on. But there are certain things that just get me really excited. Usually the things I find very strange. Well, that's great because I think that, you know, I would assume that I'm not uh, unique in, a, in thinking that a special collection, you kind of get starstruck and you're thinking of yeah. these famous, powerful literary figures. But, I mean, to, to sort of stumble up, uh, uh, across this, you know, authentic window, window into uh, an ordinary person in a, a sort of extraordinary circumstances it must be like really, right. yeah, I, I imagine that's really exciting for you to, to find stuff like that. It is. I mean, it, it really just, it's such a personal thing. What gets you excited in the special collections? You know, I have people and I can spot them a mile away. So we at Princeton have um, some unpublished J.D. Salinger material. And those guys, when they come in the door, like, you know who they are. <laughs> they have a look. And, um, and for them, this is, this is like a Mecca. Like this is, this is coming to our collection and reading these things is so important. And I, you know, there are tears in the special collections. People cry over things. They cry getting to hold things, but, um, what they cry over is so different from what I would cry over. It's really personal. Um, but it is kind of fascinating the idea that anybody can kind of end up in a special collection it just kind of depends on on what becomes extraordinary later. That's really fascinating, especially because 
so oftentimes you think about, especially with literary works, that it's just like there's a, a canon in a sense, you know, yeah. and that um, when time passes that a lot of that stuff really doesn't have as much clout or or, or meaning as it once did. And, and yeah. this is something that you can see across the board. Obviously, this is happening right now um, in the film community because there's a lot of realization that the canon, as it were, was established by white male critics. So, yeah. uh, and there's a lack of female voices and um, any voices, uh, people of color. Um, and it goes back to the beginning of the film industry when most of the early filmmakers were women, but then that's because no one took it seriously. And then all of right, a sudden it right. started making money uh, and then all those voices were suppressed and then the men took over Hollywood. So. Right. It's interesting I, to hear that over time that these things just not work themselves out, but at least there's this kind of these certain things that seem important at one time maybe aren't as important. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I when I was in grad school, I took a course where we had to read a book that I had never heard of. It was called Female Quixotism, and it was the most popular selling book in the United States in the 19th century, and it was written by a woman. And it was sort of this, sort of this romance. Not really. I didn't like it very much, frankly. <laughs> but it was the it was the most popular book until um, like Book Beyond the Bible, until Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I had never heard of it. It isn't part of the canon, but it was very widely read. And I think that's a really interesting dis disjuncture as well. You know, we think of the canon, like Dickens is a really good example, right? Because Dickens was wildly popular, but is also part of the canon. But this book, whose author I can't even remember the name of, which is pretty shameful, was wildly popular and is not part of the canon. So, like, what does that tell you? The canon is not always just what is popular. People are making decisions, right? The, the, that's where this concept of choice comes in, right? Media, books are choices, but media and the way we think about media, people are making choices, too. There's very little I found that is a given, uh, that is a, is a truth, necessarily, well, this idea of, of you know, uh, you know, talking about the canon, I think there's a notion mm -hmm. that something that's recognized as part of, you know, any canon, if you're talking about literature or film, what have you, that um, membership to that canon suggests a certain amount of um, uh, significance beyond popularity. Do you think that right. that is necessarily a valid argument to make? I mean, is there room for something that um, is immensely popular uh, within a canon? Um... I think the canon is really fascinating and, and has a place. Um, but I also think that people discount popularity and can, tend to sort of write off things that are just immensely popular, mostly because, frankly, the things... Like, like think about Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, that's never going to be part of the canon because it's not taken seriously by the literary community. But there are hundreds of thousands of people in this country that read that book. And most of them were women, as far as I can tell. And I think that that is something really significant. Like, that tells you something really significant about the American population. And I don't think we should discount that. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, what books should be taught in school, that becomes a different question. But I guess you sort of have to think about, like, what, what, what function does the canon have? Like, what, what is the purpose of the canon? You know, for Norton, the people who put together these anthologies of canonized literature, uh, the canon is 
they are establishing the canon. The canon is something to sell. But yeah, I don't. I, I struggle with the canon a lot. I don't like it, but <laughs> I kind of find it fascinating. Sure. Yeah. And we, these are we've sort of spiraled around that type of discussion on this show a number of times. The right. Sort of, uh, the 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 clash of you know popularity versus uh, critical consensus sure. or you know sort of cultural gatekeepers and that kind of thing. I think right. it's it's e- yeah, like you said, it's easy to dismiss something that's popular. It may not have any. Uh, larger literary value necessarily but i i don't know that we should be discounting something that sure. gives a lot of people joy sure right but at the right. same t- but at the same time and again like uh, i apologize for always coming in through the film avenue but <laughs> but film is more of my wheelhouse than um than sure. literature is but hitchcock was wildly successful and hugely popular uh in his heyday but critically mm-hmm. reviled um, right. And it took a while for him to be considered part of the canon because they said the same thing about him. And I'm not defending Fifty Shades, um, right. uh, uh, but you know, people said that his stuff was just trashy uh, exploitation thrillers. Uh, and then the French came along, and the French were like, "No, there's real art artistry in how he makes movies." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they started reassessing his work and, and look at how influential his work is. Uh, and 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 I see that now too, where there's a lot of film critics where they're talking about, you know, especially genre things, uh, and especially horror movies, uh, would have throughout time have always been kind of looked at, looked down on because they were uh, violent or trashy. Uh, and but there's been a way to look at them and uh, and say like, no, there's value in here. Uh, and so now people are reassessing older things that are, you know, were at one time kind of looked down upon or even if they were popular. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I think that the bottom bottom line is always that uh, taste and culture, like what is good in culture is subjective. And it's always sort of gonna change over time. I think that Hitchcock is a great example of that. It, I, I think that we sort of rest on the idea that critics know something more than the rest of us do. And they do. I mean, I don't, I don't deny that literary literary or film criticism and the people who perform that have an eye. Right. But I don't think that we need to take every, like what we, we need to take everything that critics say as gospel. I think that it's always, as I said, it's always sort of personal. There's always sort of a personal aspect to to it. There are going to be certain things that resonate with certain people more than others. There are going to be storylines and characters that, you know, touch your heart in a way that I think is hard to describe. Um, I think it's hard to sometimes put your finger on what it is about a movie or a book or a musical artist that you find really compelling. Um, it's going to speak to your story in some way, shape or form. And we all have, we all come from these different places. And so uh, storylines I think are going to touch everyone differently, but then you sort of get into the question of composition and, and what is inventive composition and what is not. And, I think it's really tricky. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's really hard. But I know that it's, but I know the canon is biased. <laughs> so <laughs> I always, know the canon is biased. I've always kind of used the the canon in quotes mm-hmm. and, and, and lists or in crit- film criticism or literary cris- criticism in general as like a starting point. Yes. Uh, because yeah. there's a lot of people that when you see a list published anywhere, there's always mm-hmm. that like, how dare they? How dare they yeah. publish this kind of thing? And it's just like, well, it doesn't matter. It's all subjective. So use this, 
as a starting point, make your own list and then use this to find new things. And that's how I've discovered so many things because I wouldn't have watched a lot of, you know, of my favorite earlier screwball comedies if I didn't find my way in via the things that are considered canon. Um, But through that, I've discovered like some deep cuts from some some really beloved filmmakers. And uh, I'm sure that goes the same for literature and, and, and music, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a starting place. I think people maybe think too much of it as an ending place, but I think a starting place is a better place, a better place to think of it as. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, so we had you on today because um, we're talking about We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley yes. Jackson. You know, we had communicated uh, before, and, and I know you're a pretty big Shirley Jackson fan. Um, mm-hmm. So before we get into the book, why don't you talk a bit about, you know, your history with Shirley Jackson, um, your familiarity with with her work and and her in general, I guess. Sure. So I had actually always written off Shirley Jackson because my introduction to Shirley Jackson, speaking of the canon, actually, was The Lottery, um, which is one of her short stories. It's arguably her, I would say, her most famous work, um, but I think I'm biased. I remember being assigned this in school when I was like 12 you know, it, it's uh, it's sort of this dystopian um, short story. If you haven't read it, it's it's about a small town, and I don't want to give it away, but they they have this ritual that's that you find out is is kind of twisted. And so I read it when I was twelve, and I don't think that it was taught to me very well. I didn't really get the nuance of it or the horror of it. Uh, as an adult, especially living it, I think in these times, it's it's a lot more resonant. But I really. I always knew Shirley Jackson's The Lady Who Wrote the Lottery. And I actually was assigned it a lot in school. So, like, I read it the first time when I was 12. I read it again in high school. I have this vague memory of it being on a standardized test. And then I actually also read it in a college course. And every time I read it, I just didn't get what the big deal was. And I think part of that is cultural. When the the lottery was published, um, it was it drove people crazy. It was published in... Um, I want to say the mid-50s, it was maybe the mid-60s. It was revolutionary. People had never read anything like it. It was in The New Yorker. They Didn't like, people believe that it was real? Yeah, some people believed it was real, like an, a firsthand account. There were anthropologists who were convinced this was actually happening in the United States, and God knows, maybe it is. I hope not. But it really just it drove people crazy. She got hundreds of letters from readers asking her what the point of it was, what was she trying to say with it? It was this huge think piece that really launched her career. But as a young person, I just didn't get it. Like I didn't get any of that. And maybe that's the feelings of my teacher and and maybe that's the feelings of myself. But, um, but I just kind of wrote her off. I didn't really get it. And so it really has only been in the last like two years or so that I've really sort of come back to Shirley Jackson. I read um, Angela Carter's, collection of short stories called the bloody chamber um and i never was a horror person angela carter wrote these short stories that were sort of adult fairy tales and i just thought it was it was such an interesting book um such an interesting collection that was really interrogating gender and interrogating sexism and bias and and prejudice in a way that i'd never really seen before and so i started I started kind of looking into that and I found that Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House was on all of these lists 
for people talking about their favorite horror book. You know, I think that uh, Haunting of Hill House is one of Stephen King's favorite short stories or short novels ever. And and when they talked about it, they really talked about its commentary on gender. And I didn't really realize that's what was what Shirley Jackson was about. And for me, as I said, as I'm so I'm someone who really I think a lot about gender. I think a lot about women's writing. I think a lot about the ways in which we talk about a woman's role in society, particularly in fiction. This really started to appeal to me. And so I I read Haunting of Hill House and I, I had friends who were also sort of having a mirror journey on this. And um, and I really enjoyed it. Well, it's weird to say that because it's it's kind of a downer, but um, but I just found it to be so fascinating. She seemed to be doing something so different than what I expected her to be doing in that book, and so I and so I read that, and then I read uh, We Have Always Lived at the Castle, and then I read this biography of her by Ruth Franklin called A Rather Haunted Life, and just she just is a fascinating person. She just had so much going on. She wrote you know, these kind of zany books about raising her children at the same time she was writing stuff like We Have Always Lived at the Castle. She just was a lady with a lot going on. So my my journey to Shirley Jackson is actually a pretty new one, and um, I'm really glad I found her. What about you, Tony? Yeah, I, I have to be honest and admit to having no familiarity with her um, prior to, to Matt. You brought it up um, Specifically, you you brought up uh, We've Always Lived in the Castle, and I kind of gave you a look, and you said it's by the same woman who wrote uh, Haunting of Hill House, which I was only familiar with because they recently adapted it into a TV series. But, you know, another confession here is that uh, I definitely, not by choice, but sort of taking a step back and, and looking at the the media I consume, whether it's film or uh, uh, literature, uh, is definitely not enough female voices in uh, you know, in, in sort of my uh, my list of, of books that I've read. So especially with with this and, and knowing that there is a sort of more recent pop cultural reference point, uh, I was very curious to to read this book and to sort of get to know the author a bit more. Any background from you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the same. Like, I didn't really know anything about her. I was never assigned any of her work. Um... Uh, and Haunting a Hill House uh, premiered on Netflix, and I was I, I thought the the director is is has a lot of potential. I, I liked some of his movies. Um, his name is Mike Flanagan, and he did this movie called Hush, and he did Oculus, and he's doing actually the new um, Stephen King adaptation, uh, Doctor Sleep, which is a sequel to The Shining. And and I watched the series, and I and I thought it was was decent, if not great, um, like most of Mike Flanagan's work. But I was curious because I had I had read uh, a lot of criticism about the show, uh, and and in it everyone had stated how um, the Haunting of Hill House is one of the greatest horror novels ever written or ghost stories ever written. So I had kind of added to my list of books to read along with a few others because um, along with a few other Shirley Jackson books, uh, and then when this. Uh, we decided to do a horror month and we were looking for books to do. We kind of went through and I said, well, these are supposed to be great. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of the roundabout way of how we chose. Um, we have always lived in the castle. Yeah. And I, I generally don't read a lot of horror. Uh, I, I certainly watch more than I read. Yeah. Um, same. So, and it's, it's a much different 
experience. It's a different kind of spooky. And yeah. It, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's strange because, and we've talked about this a bit on the show uh, now that we're doing Horror Month, um, but you know, the, the genre is fairly elastic, uh, and I would say that this is sort of horror adjacent, and there's obviously these mm-hmm. these things in it that are um, macabre uh, and, and, and pretty dark, uh, and, and there is some violence, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's in tone that it feels like horror to me, um, the way she tells the story. Yeah, I think it's also um, a very, so I am not a horror person. Um, I read, I read all the synopses of uh, the uh, adaptation of Haunting of Hill House, but I could not bring myself to watch it. It was actually interesting because the ones written on Vulture were written by the woman who wrote the biography, Ruth Franklin. Um, So she had a very interesting perspective on the show. But I think that the horror in her novels, I think both in this novel and in uh, Hill House, it feels very gendered to me compared to other horror that I've encountered. It's, it's very particular to her and her experience based on what I've read about her life. Um, You know, she lived in Bennington, Vermont, which was in, you know, in the middle of nowhere, she and her husband Stanley were, um, he was Jewish and she, she never converted, but they, they sort of were known as being Jewish. I think she was half Jewish by her mother's side. But anyway, um, so she was always kind of an outsider. And her books really deal with the horror of being an outsider in a way that I think can feel very true to a woman's experience. In a way that's there, there's a horror there, I think, that is different than some of the bigger scares you might get in other books. But again, I haven't read... I'm not a horror person. So like most of the horror I've read has been by women that sort of along the, these lines. Like I never brought myself to read a Stephen King book. I, I think they would keep me up at night. So why don't we get into the book before we really kind of dig into it? I kind of wanted to read the opening paragraph because I think it's mm. it's perfect uh, and sets the tone for the for the whole thing. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length, but I have had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs and noise. I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Aminata Phalanoids, the death cup mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. Yeah, dark. It, but it's so great because it sets like it just it, out the gate. It kind of has this almost playful tone with that darkness to it. And, you know, the whole book is narrated by uh, Mary Catherine Blackwood and her nickname is Mary Cat. And she is your kind of typical unreliable narrator. I guess let's 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 kind of just break down the story. It's pretty simple. Mary Catherine, who is uh, 18 and her sister Constance. Uh, they're part of the Blackwood family, and they live in this house with their uncle Julian. As Mary Catherine indicates in the the first paragraph of the book, her family is dead. Yes, there was a, an incident involving arsenic six years prior to when the book takes place. Constance was suspected and, and eventually um, not charged with the murder. But now there is a sort of shadow over the family and the village as Mary Catherine describes in that first chapter, 
they clearly have all made up their mind about what happened at the Blackwood home. Mary Cat is sent into town twice a week to get their groceries and other supplies. Um, and the way she describes just the the atmosphere of the village as she, you know, whenever she goes in, um, the looks she gets, the the rhymes that the the kids uh, recite. There's a sort of um, you know an urban myth, and there's a, a true to a good horror story, an accompanying children's rhyme to sort of uh, invoke the horrors that may or may not have happened. On the other hand, Mary Cat also describes in detail like the the town becoming consumed with rot and walking over all their dead bodies and. So, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, she's sort of letting you into how she feels in town. And she's also suggesting that she's not a particular fan of the town either. Yeah. And I think she implies, too, that um, her father distrusted everyone in town. And so Mm -hmm. the family kind of like she's learned from her family. It's almost like they're implying that this... A lot of it is kind of like you can't really escape your past. You can't really escape your family either. Yeah, but she goes into town to get things for everyone. And um, her sister, Constance, is an agoraphobic. So you read the the biography on on Shirley Jackson. And correct me if I'm wrong, but she was a bit of an agoraphobic as well. Yes. she Towards the end of her life, she became an agoraphobic or her agoraphobia sort of emerged um and this is her final book so so it was close to to then right yeah she um yeah she she always sort of struggled with her weight and i would i would really recommend the biography because it goes into it and like a goes into sort of her life in a way that's very much more in-depth I'm going to gloss over things, but you know, she, as she got older and older, she, she struggled with her weight her whole life. Her mother was incredibly terrible to her about her weight. And also she died at the age of 46 towards the end, her teeth started rotting. She, she, she started to really have, she started to deteriorate physically. And she also, there was an inciting incident that sort of really scared her, I believe involving a fan, but I want to, I would say read the biography because there was something that sort of ticked her off, but she stopped, she stopped going outside and she had a really hard time. She would have these panic attacks. She, she loved going into New York when she was younger, but by the time she passed away, she couldn't leave her house at all. And certainly couldn't leave her house without her husband. And it's really tragic because it sounds like she, she struggled with her community, but certainly engaged with it. I I have this quote from her mother about the success of, about the success of um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And her mom said, why do you allow the magazines to print such awful pictures of you for your children's sake and your husband's? I've been so sad all morning about what you have allowed yourself to look like. You were, and I guess still are, a very willful child. And she called her a willful child when she was 48 years old. Yeah. That's tragic. That is so terrible. She was not a great parent. But you can see how that informs the book, because I guess it feels like Constance and Mary Catherine were kind of like this dual version of of Shirley Jackson, like this kind of competing um, ideas, I, I guess. And 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 Mary Cat is almost it, it's this this notion of like because Mary Cat's trying to win essentially; <laughs> she's trying to win Constance's affection and win over Constance in regards to her views on the world, um, which, was, as we discussed, are, are pretty dark. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, but the book plays like a mystery almost about what actually happened to uh, the Blackwood family. And some town folks come and and it's kind of like, I guess it's almost like a weekly kind of visit. Yeah, there's there's a woman who, who always comes up for tea. Yeah. Um, and she brings a friend along. And, yeah. you know, it, it you know, you definitely get this sense that it's um, it is a bit of effort for Constance to sort right. of um, be prepared to to have that engagement. And while this is happening, their their uncle Julian, who was um, who survived the the poisoning, is sort of rattling off his his details because he's taking these he's been taking notes ever since to sort of recount things leading up to and and the night of the incident. And he's always sort of kind of sprinkling these clues and details um, that between you know his recollection and, and Mary Cat's sort of um, you know unreliable narration uh, until the until the, the the truth comes out it is kind of nebulous and, and leaves you sort of guessing and trying to fill in yourself what what actually happened yeah but isn't it interesting how it doesn't really matter Oh yeah. Like I don't think that's the point of the book. Oh yeah, for sure. Is who did it? She and that's one of the things I think is so so wonderful about the way this was written is that she builds in that sense of like who did it? Who did it? What happened? But it doesn't matter. That's not the point of the novel. It doesn't really like I, I, can we spoil who did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We... yeah. I mean it doesn't really matter that we learn that Mary Cat was the one who actually poisoned them. I don't think that that's because when I found that out, I, I sort of was like, well, I always, I felt like I always knew. Yeah. It, it was the way it plays is very kind of uh, nonchalant. Like she just reveals it. Right. And, and her sister's like, yeah, I knew too. And then it, when you read it, it, it feels like, yeah, that feels inevitable. It feels right. Uh, right. And that's not a slight so, against the book. No, no. It's, it's actually a really interesting turn. Because she does set it up as this mystery. And when you do have Julian really trying to put the pieces together, like that's the point of his character sort of, uh, is he's this person who's trying to put the pieces together and um, keep your concentration on, you know, what really happened that night. And and it's not so mysterious. It is tragic and it is sort of horrific. But it's not, I don't think the horror of the book is the fact that Mary Cat poisoned her family, even though that is deeply dark no yeah I, I i think the horror really comes from this idea uh, and this is kind of spoiling the ending but um you know in the end mary cat and constance are kind of left to their own devices and the two of them are on their yeah. own and they isolate themselves and it's a win for mary cat um but you it's a tragic ending because she's kind of her sister will never leave the two of them will never leave yeah yeah and it's heartbreaking yeah. um but you see how the town treats them and how um, how you can get to that point of isolation. Yeah. I, I, so the, you know, we, we talked a bit about the town, but uh, since we're, we're already talking about the ending, um, there's a fire at their home that Mary Cat starts. And when the fire is put out, the whole town's there and it's this big scene. And then, like, the town just sort of finally... The, like hit a boiling point and then they start, you know, breaking windows and ransacking and looting the house. And I mean, that, that was terrifying. The, the I hated that part. Yeah. I hate that part. The, the way that the sisters are sort of running around and, and hiding and then getting cornered by these mobs. Um, yeah. You really, 
uh, I mean, the, the the notion of a of an entire community having such pent up vitriol for these two young women that you know their instinct is well, the house is already on fire. Let's just finally do it. Yeah, and they yeah. act on all that that rage and that you know what they have you know the the story they have cooked up in their own heads. I mean, it's all sort of geared towards Constance because they believe that she's the one who did it. Yeah. Um, and then when it is revealed that Julian has had a heart attack and dies, they sort of, you know, it's like, it's almost like they sort of come out of whatever fever took over all of them and they all abandon these two women to just sort of live in this gutted, decrepit house and they just kind of, pe- yeah, like you said, Mary Cat sees it as a win, oddly yeah. enough, and she, yeah. she like regains that control over over what little they have left it's yeah the the scene where the house burns down and the and, and the townspeople are kind of confronting them and everything just felt like uh frankenstein to me and mm. um because there's those similar moments in frankenstein where they confront the monster and mm. um because the monster is a child um and it this plays the same way in the sense that they mm-hmm. treat these kids they think they're monsters um especially they believe Constance is the one that's responsible for the murder. But did those two women earn that? Like that, that it didn't feel earned like that, the, the way the town turned on them. Oh yeah. It just, it felt, it felt so out of proportion to what they thought they had done. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That it's, it's that, um, you know, vigilante mob mentality that they, they believed something so, uh, violently that they you know the town yeah. felt justified in doing it but yeah i mean as a reader uh certainly didn't feel earned and uh you know the, your sympathies were it di- it was not the catharsis that the town was feeling it, your sympathies were with the the two women oh yeah right yeah uh it, it's a lot like you know the simpsons uh logic because the town constantly turns on a dime mm-hmm. because they're always um they become uh like this unit and they're acting as a group as opposed to as individuals at that point, like the mob mentality. Yeah. Usually well, in, that, in that case, usually they're all too willing to follow the loudest, dumbest voice in the room. <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> well, that's, that's sort of what's happening here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we, we haven't mentioned uh, Charles Blackwood yet, uh, and he's a pretty big part of the book. Um, and he's uh, cousins of Mary, Catherine, and Constance, and he kind of shows up to um, kind of insert himself into the household. And it's it it seems like he's looking for, I guess, um, some well, some wealth from yeah, the family. He's there to take advantage of yeah of whatever he can. And he kind of ingratiates himself with Constance, and he uh, immediately resents Mary Catherine. He thinks that kind of Uncle Julian is just sort of a waste of space at this point. Yeah. Uh, but he, the way he talks to Constance is so so awful because he just makes her do everything for her. And even when um, Mary Catherine goes and kind of destroys his room, uh, Constance says, well, I, w- I will clean it for you. Don't worry about that. Um, it's, <laughs> the, the, the gender dynamics are just really um, interesting, especially for a book uh, from the 60s. Yeah, I find I found him so creepy. He just seems like such a leech. I didn't trust him. I, it sounds like rightfully so. He was a very interesting choice to have that be because he's sort of the catalyst for the destruction. 
Um, and to have this sort of suitor, this young man, be the thing that sort of sets it all off. And it's it sort of doubles down on the tragedy, too, because even though he's, you know, not a winner, I think that Constance wants him there's a you could see a life for Constance beyond these four wall the four walls of their house if she had been open to Charles and Mary Cat just refuses to sort of see it that way. You know, what does Constance want? Does Constance want to be with Charles? Does she want to wait on him hand and foot? Like that's not something that I want, but like maybe that's what she wanted. Maybe that's the life she wanted because she waits on Mary Cat quite a bit. Yeah, I, I, I she never. Yeah, you're right. She never lashes out i mean there's that moment early on where um i can't remember what the sort of inciting incident is but you know mary cat just you know like a spoiled child like starts breaking things and constance's you know it her response isn't you know you're you're being a little ridiculous right now clean that up it's oh, i'll i'll take care of that i, I can f- i'll fix this yeah, it is interesting that she is sort of it's sort of like a it becomes a tug of war between Mary Cat and Charles for yeah um, not not necessarily yeah you know, I, I think you know for Constance but in a larger sense sort of uh, you know their philosophies or their worldviews are kind of dueling it out. Mary Catherine says of Charles, "I would have to find something else to bury here, and I wish it could be Charles." <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of like her sense of humor throughout the whole book. She's constantly talking about things in such morose ways. <laughs> she says, "I wonder if I could eat a child if I had the chance." <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's pretty. It's pretty. Pretty dark. It's really, but it's kind of funny in some ways. I don't know. I found a lot of that kind of stuff funny in a darkly comic sure. way. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's certainly a wit. Um... And Shirley Jackson always sort of had that wit. You'll find that elsewhere yeah. in her work as well. Like I said, she wrote these books that are apparently quite funny about, you know, life among the savages, which is about her raising her children, which apparently are hilarious. Yeah. But I have not read them. I read an interview with one of her sons, and he thought oh. I thought he thought that the books about him were, were charming because he knew that they were slightly apocryphal and heightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this the musician? I, I yeah, I'm not oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, uh, I was just curious because he sounded like an interesting person. <laughs> well, because they they found a bunch of her, her like older unpublished stuff. So I guess it was up to the kids to kind of go through and see if things were worth um, publishing or or whatnot. I I felt like a lot of this story um, on the podcast we covered a Wizard of Earthsea by uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm-hmm. And she said that she wrote that book as like a response to Lord of the Rings. She wanted to know where Gandalf came from. And this book felt similar to me in a lot of ways because this notion of the scary house kids and there's this this old woman or this old person living there and they're scary and you don't approach this um, is such a horror trope that you see all the time, um, whether it's in easy comics or horror anthologies such as Trick or Treat or, or, or something like Hansel and Gretel. And this felt almost like that sort of getting into the interior lives of of that story, of the, the origin of how do we get to that point? Because at the end, we know that they are isolated and that the kids are scared to go to the house and they they still say their, mm-hmm. their nursery rhymes about 
Mary Cat and Constance and, and how they poison their family. Yeah, I thought the same thing. It felt very, you know, the, one way of thinking of it was almost as a an origin story for an urban legend, you know? Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, communities all have those uh, tall tales and, uh, you know, the, the, the secrets that get passed down through generations and the stories evolve and they change and become more exploitative as they go. And, and this felt like... Um, yeah, sort of exploring that moment where where that story is born for this community. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, I imagine that all of Mary Cat's little magic items and and whatnot that she's buried and, and posted around the property fed into that. Um, yeah, that's, it, that's a big part that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. That she has yeah. this belief in, in magic in that she... Um, you know, she's buried coins all all around the property, or, or nailed a book to a tree. Um, yeah, when the book falls down, she believes it's this portent for mm-hmm. oh, bad things are going to happen now that this book has fallen down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's your your read on that? On how on how this the importance to her of all these sort of magic items and and sort of how that maybe sort of feeds her her point of view. Shirley Jackson's or, or uh, Mary Cat's and you know I mean so Shirley Jackson was very a very sort of witchy person she was accused at one point of putting a hex on someone so um, like, like seriously accused or <laughs> not like by the law oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she she always sort of had an interest in the supernatural mm-hmm. particularly in college um, but I also read that she didn't actually believe in ghosts she did not believe in ghosts, but I do think that she probably, I, I don't know, she was very cagey about it. Sure. So, like, the bi- the biography sort of doesn't fall one way or another. Kind of like we have always lived in the castle. castle. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because Mary Cat is obviously, has some pretty serious control issues, which is like a kind of glib way of saying that. But I thought, I, I always, when I was reading it, I just thought it was so interesting the ways in which this girl was sort of trying to influence her world and keep herself safe and and the methods through which she thought that she could do that and it wasn't through other people you know like beyond her sister she kills her parents and your parents are supposed to be as a you know when you're a child are supposed to be the people that sort of protect you from the ills of the world and for whatever reason, she didn't believe that. And so she sort of substituted those comforts with these weird objects, most of them tangentially related to her parents, right? Because the the book is, is her father's diary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. I didn't land I th- concretely on anything. Uh, well, I, I think that's part of the point, too, because like, when you find out that Mary Cat, Mary Cat killed her parents, they never really say why. You know, she yeah. never really explains why. So she's not, I think almost a, a lesser book would would hold your hand a bit more and make you f- sympathize with, with Mary Cat in her decision. What's I think works so well is that you do sympathize or empathize with her while never completely understanding her choices. Sure. Yeah, but you don't necessarily feel slighted for, say, not learning the significance of uh, the words Melody, Gloucester, and Pegasus. Those are like the three magic words she comes up with at that one point. Um, You're you're so just, her point of view is so richly written, and then you're just, you know, you're just 
I guess, accepting it because she accepts it, and and that's enough. It is interesting to your point that so much of it were artifacts from her family who she decided that she didn't need anymore, and she's sort of using, I guess, using these magic items to to do for her what she felt that they couldn't. Cousin Charles is just enraged by all these um, hidden coins and, and things nailed to the wall. Right, but then he's like, she's bearing all this money around, and yeah. you, you hear that as she hears it, and it's like he he's not mad that I'm burying money sure. that we can use. He's mad that we, I'm burying money that he could take. Yeah, but but Constance is always just like, well, why does that matter? Mm-hmm. Why does any of that matter? It's not a big deal. And she's like, well, she needs to be punished. And Constance is just like, I don't understand why, because it isn't right. important. It's not important to their life. It's certainly not important to their life after the house burns down. I hate to think of like. 10 years after the end of the novel, what, are they alive? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, does the town just continue to sort of feed them? Well, they know which what mushrooms are poisonous next? and which ones are not. So <laughs> maybe they survive yeah. off of a mushroom diet. Well, the first thing that Constance oh. does is when they enter the house is she's just, my kitchen, my kitchen. Right. And then she goes down into their 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 food storage locker or the, like a pantry. Yep. And to see what food is remaining for them. Like that's all she kind of knew is this life of, of almost servitude to, to, to uncle Julian and Mary cat. I have a note here. She, the way she wrote something about the preserves that like, Oh yes. Um, all the Blackwood women had taken the food that came from the ground and preserved it. And the deeply colored rows of jellies and pickles and bottled vegetables and fruit Maroon and amber and dark, rich green stood side by side in our cellar and would stand there forever. A room by the Blackwood women. She was like, "Yeah, we got it. We're fine." <laughs> but oh, like I don't know. It's that. It's so evocative of like that. Again, another horror trope is you know the 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 creepy basement with all like the the jars and like the gourds hanging from the ceiling, yeah. and it, it paints a vivid picture. I think. To your point about um, the thought of what they were like 10 years after the novel, that was really chilling to me because when I was a teenager, around like 13 or 14, my friends and I found an old abandoned house in the woods and we spent a summer just hanging out in it. It was like a, oh, like yeah. a, you know, like a stone foundation cellar. Uh, you could go up to the second and first floor, but it was kind of risky because of how much of the wood had rotted. So we spent most of the time in the basement. Whenever I read or see anything that deals with some sort of old damaged home that's been forgotten, um, mm-hmm. I immediately am like, oh, I, what if, what if, uh, what if Mary Cat came back from picking mushrooms while we were hanging out in that basement one time? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because at the end, it really, there's really this picture of this, this home that's just absolutely destroyed. Yet, Mary Cat, as the narrator, is talking about how finally her and Constance are together and they're going to go to the moon. And she keeps talking about the moon and how they're now part of the moon and they're living on the moon together. And she says to her, oh, Constance, we are so happy. Like she speaks for her at the end. And it's really, it's heartbreaking. It's really sad. There was a really interesting episode of This American Life once where they were talking about... um, a you might you might find this interesting Tony with your your house story where there was a boy 
who, when he was like 12, found an abandoned home that was like abandoned in situ. So like everything was still there. And it was the episode is sort of about trying to put together the tragedy of like what happened. I'm trying to remember what the theme of the episode was, but, but there was this, this, this horror that I think really kind of connects to this book about what is left behind and what our lives sort of look like in, in the middle of interrupted. Right. So like this idea of, you know, if you came across this house, the black, uh, Blackmore Manor, what would you think happened there? Yeah, it was really interesting. I should try and look up what the um, actual episode was because it was totally fascinating. But, but yeah, these this idea of what is the home, what do we what do we put into our homes? How do we make them? What kind of magical properties do they have? Which is something that also runs through uh, Haunting of Hill House, obviously, because that is even more of a, a ghost haunted house story. Um, but this idea of the home as this place of sort of turmoil and high high passions, but also grief and how this the home can sort of embody all of those things at once. Yeah, this isn't a literal ghost story, but there's definitely this presence that's felt throughout the whole book. And, you know, that could be the house itself or um, uh, Mary Catherine and Constance's parents. And, and we didn't mention this earlier, but... Um, uh, cousin Charles, when he shows up, they say that he looks just like their parents and he starts right. dressing in their clothes. So that's another sort of ghost metaphor there where their father, in essence, sort of approaches and takes over the home when they had gotten rid of their father. So I do still think it fits into um, the horror genre in that in that sense. I know you're you said you're not a big horror fan um necessarily uh, but this is horror month here on the show and so we've been talking a lot yeah. about a different horror things i will say that i find horror i have like a perverse fascination with it like i can't read it too in depth and i can't i can't watch certain scary movies i find it all really fascinating i read a lot of wikipedia <laughs> like summaries. like <laughs> summaries of movies or or books yeah too. i read i read a lot of summaries of movies and i've read a lot of summaries of books yeah um, we talked about Stephen King uh, on this show, um, and I do yeah. feel that there's a, 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 a little bit of overlap here in how it approaches the mm-hmm. story and how it's about this small town uh, and, and a community and how it treats these people. And that's a lot of his work. You know, it, it's, right. it's, it's transported from, from Vermont to Maine. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely uh, some overlapping New England Gothic in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's always, you know, I think his stuff is a lot more uh, plot heavy and he's probably not as uh, eloquent um, in his writing. And and I don't mean that as a slag because I do think that he's a he's a great writer. Um, But she just has a way with words. Um, I'm not so great when it comes to prose (laughs) or at least talking about it. (laughs) She's very subtle. Yeah. And but and 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 those you know, emotional moments, whether it's, you know, that sort of dry wit you were talking about or or some of the more, you know, horror tinged elements like it, it hits you hard too. she's it's really. Yeah, I, I was uh, I found myself really not nervous reading it, but I, I was certainly ed- on the edge of my seat the whole time. I think in a lot of it, too, has to do with certain horror tropes, maybe feeding into my expectations. Um whether or not they were intended to be red herrings or a lot of things that 
I'm like, oh, okay, this is where it's going to take that turn and kind of become the ghost story. And it didn't. And that was really satisfying because I don't know that it would have if they been made it as literal. fulfilling if it was a, a literal ghost story. Yeah. You, you, before we started recording, you had talked about watching the film adaptation that came out last year. Correct. And uh, you felt that it didn't quite work because a lot of what's in the text didn't make it to the film in terms of, you know, that internal dialogue, that yeah. that clear, unreliable narrator doesn't necessarily yeah. come across um, in the film. Emma, are you familiar with mm-hmm. the adaptation at all or uh, did you hear about it? Yeah, yeah. Uh... I read the synopsis of it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's directed um, by Stacy Passan, and okay. I watched it um, for the episode because uh, I'm I, I love doing the adaptation thing, and I'm a movie buff. So, and yeah, I, the biggest problem I had with it um, was that it kind of literalizes a lot of things that the book intentionally leaves um, ambiguous. It makes cousin Charles' advances towards Constance uh, a little more overt. Um, and he physically gets rough with Mary Catherine, and it also implies that uh, Mary Catherine killed her parents because they were abusive to Constance, and I don't think it adds anything to the book. I think it just makes it a little more... It spells everything out a lot more. Uh, I think superficially it looked really nice. Uh, There's a lot of attention to detail in the house, um, giving it that kind of 60s sort of... A mixture of kind of 60s uh, modern with with that kind of gothic tinge to it. So everything is very ornamental and and there's a lot of precision with the framing as far as like, you know, if they're showing a room with lots of things in the room, everything is in its right place. Yeah, they want you to notice it all. Yeah. Um, And the cast is pretty good. Um, So Mary Cat is played by uh, Tessa Farmagia? F-A-R-M-I-G-A? Is it? Tessa Farmagia, uh, and she really leans into the the weirdness of Mary Catherine. So she has this really strange gait, you know, where she makes quick steps and she's a bit hunched and has this expressive face of just like you know uh, that that kind of shows off this strange interior life. Like mm-hmm. they really lean into it. It almost feels like that. You know, I talked about how this was felt like you know, that horror trope of the crazy people that live in this strange house. And it felt like that in her performance of just like, she is the crazy person. I didn't get that reading the book that she was crazy necessarily unreliable narrator. Yeah. But this kind of leans into it a bit more. So yeah, again, like I thought it was better than I was anticipating, but now that we're talking about it too, I'm probably like, Oh yeah. Okay. These things are, uh, weren't as satisfying as I thought they would be. Again, it's the kind of literalization of things that um, that kind of bummed me out the most. And and there is some narration in it, and it kind of like, if you're going to use narration, it feels like you should probably use some of these, some of the recurring things or, or, or some of the more, um, like the opening paragraph we were talking about, and, and it doesn't really include a lot of that kind of stuff. I heard a similar criticism about the television show for... Um haunting of hill house uh because they sort of expand upon that story right it's not really an adaptation it's no. sort of a yeah it's an interpretation i guess yeah and it, it's, mo- yeah, it's, it's modern it's an interpretation it's modern and again like the ending makes the themes explicit it's like this is the theme 
because um, yeah. it doesn't, you know, it does a pretty good job of kind of laying things out and allowing you to kind of live in this world and, and, and make up your own mind, but then the ending kind of makes it explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And that's always the risk of an adaptation. And and to go back to Stephen King for a bit, I recently um, saw It Chapter 2, and it kind of crystallized for me one thing that makes adaptations of books so difficult. In the book It, uh, he describes the true version of Pennywise uh, as something that is unknowable to the kids, that they can't possibly perceive of what this thing is. So to them, it's almost like a spider. And so that description in and of itself is so fascinating. And so it relies on the writing and that ambiguity in there to really fuel your imagination. But when you depict that, you have to show something. You're showing like a large spider. Yeah. And that's inherently right. not satisfying whatsoever. And that kind of gets into the adaptations of these as well, where you're doing, you're stripping the prose away and you're just make, literalizing things. And that's a really difficult thing to do. I think when an adaptation is successful, is it's doing its own thing. And, and to go back to Stephen King yet again, that's why I think The Shining is so successful because it is its own work um, and uses the original novel as inspiration as opposed to this kind of sacred text. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to adapt a novel because there's just so much going on in it. And the language of film is so different than the language of writing in some ways. But we're so quick to do it. So many movies these days are adaptations of novels or or other movies. But it's just such a it's hard. It's really hard to draw that line. Yeah, it seems like often the motivating factor is this is a thing people liked reading. They're going to like watching it as opposed to right. what is it about this thing that got so many people invested and how can we make that work in the story we want to tell? I would love to see a wonderful, like a really well done adaptation of this book, but I just don't know if it's possible. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. Because I think unless you have the entirety of the, the narration, I don't. I don't know if it works, but a movie with that much narration could be tedious as well. Mm-hmm. And I think the issue a lot of times is that they're they're combating expectations of an audience uh, because, you know, this is an older book. It's not like a book that's always talked about. Recently, I think the success of Hill House probably pushed this movie uh, to get developed a little quicker because they're like, hey, this Shirley uh, Jackson adaptation was successful. Maybe we could do another Shirley Jackson adaptation. But again, like it just it, it's trying to 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 kind of play it both ways and, and be satisfying to the audience. And I think if it were to be closer to the novel and be a little more abstract, that would probably piss off a lot more people, which is unfortunate because, you know, ambiguity can be great if you accept it. And, and oftentimes audiences kind of run from it. That's the interesting thing about reading about the reaction to the lottery. The ambiguity of the lottery, like I said earlier, just drove people absolutely crazy. People were just in a total tizzy over what that story meant, whether it was true or not, is even is not even what it was about. It was that they couldn't figure out what she was trying to say because she because I think, as you can see in this book, like she doesn't lead you directly to the water. She writes around it and and kind of expects you to sort of draw your own conclusions. And it's so interesting because when I was when I was reading this about this fervor, these letters she would get from these women or these people, there was one woman in particular who was just bereft 
at the idea that she didn't know what the lottery amounted to. And for me, even though I you know, wasn't impressed with it as a child, it seemed so obvious that it was this deep social commentary on mob mentality and the uh, dangers of following tradition just for tradition's sake and a lack of critical thinking. It, for me, it just seemed like, oh, yeah, that's what the lottery is about. But then you had all these people writing in with different analyses and different things they thought it was about. But I never really questioned it. But it's, it's just is so interesting the way she can sort of do that. She can sort of live in that ambiguity and give it to you and just expects you to kind of sit with it. It's a good exercise. Yeah. And I, and I almost wonder if by by putting out there a, a work that challenged those types of ideas, if if she would have been disappointed if she didn't get all the angry letters. Like <laughs> maybe, maybe like, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe, you know, yeah, you know, if she you know was trying to yeah. upset the apple cart a little bit and sure. get people to. You know, because if you're getting someone mad, you know, not necessarily all the time, but I'd like to think that some of them are mad because you struck a nerve and, and what you're, con- you know, what they're confronted with is challenging how they've always operated. And But this book was also, uh, We Have Always Lived in the Castle was really successful when it came out. Uh, like, it sold well and and it, it garnered a lot of awards uh, in 1962 and... I forgot. I think it was like Time Magazine said it was one of the best books of the year or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. Which is crazy to think we're talking about. You know, we're talking about it in the, this language of like, oh, this is this is so, you know, ambiguous and, and and audiences don't like that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was successful. It was really popular. So I, I don't know. Maybe in this form, that kind of thing, it works better. I don't know. Yeah, it also goes back to where this conversation started in terms of it being something that was quite popular in its time, but something neither mm-hmm. you or I had any real familiarity with prior to doing it for this. Yeah, oh, true, yeah. It, it, we've covered a lot of things on the show that at one point in time was really popular or but hasn't had that staying power, and that interests us, you know? It will be interesting to see what stays and what doesn't. Like, will my children watch The Hangover? That was such a big movie. Hopefully not. <laughs> like, hopefully not. <laughs> but, like, yeah, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? And like, you know, it's the 25th anniversary of Friends. And apparently all of the kids these days, like, love Friends. And they didn't grow up with it. It's the same thing with The Office, too, where it's just gained in popularity since it's been off the air. and It's massive. It's, it's so huge. Right. Yeah. But who would have ever... I mean, Friends was huge in its time. But again, like, no one's watching Cheers. Well, I, well I, I did have a Cheers phase. Yeah, me too. I watch, we, I watch Cheers too, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's... it's inter- okay, okay. Well, I mean, especially... You should watch Cheers. It's really good. <laughs> I've heard that. I mean, a, a television in particular until, you know, really the last 15 years or so, it has always been a really disposable medium because right. there was never a, a way to watch it all again. Unlike movies, you know, really until... Um, the early 2000s, you couldn't go to the video store and rent a TV show. So if you missed it, you missed it unless you, know, you catch it on reruns or decades later, you're, you're watching it on Nick at Night because your parents, it was something that they grew up with and yeah. they're sharing it with their kids. But this is also true of uh, movies before VHS mm-hmm. became popular in mm-hmm. the 80s because, again, we did an episode on uh, Wizard of Oz, the book, and in it we talked about the movie and the movie... Uh, was pretty popular, but it 
had staying power because it was on constant rotation on television. And there are a number of movies that, that had that, like Shawshank Redemption is another one which was not a success whatsoever, but became this perennial favorite uh, by being on television. Uh, and it became like a ritual for a lot of people. And now it's this hugely successful movie. So it's all about sometimes accessibility. What makes things tougher now is that there's too much accessibility. So like how does something, like how does The Office gain popularity? It's because Netflix is popular. But if if Netflix all of a sudden has too many things and and then Disney's new streaming service becomes popular, is it just Disney shows that are, are start to take over? And, and the next generation starts looking at and saying like, oh, these are the these are the shows. These are the things that we all know about. So uh, it's an interest. It's strange time. Well, and that's the interesting thing about these new platforms, right? Like they like they're taking friends off of Netflix. They're taking the office off of Netflix. Parks and Rec is coming off of Netflix, which is, you know, how many times have I rewatched Parks and Rec on Netflix? So many. And now I have to be like, oh, should I buy this on DVD? So that I can always have, You'll have it. You have to subscribe to like, NBC's new streaming service. Yeah. Right. What's, I don't what's, do that. <laughs> yeah, me neither. But what's troubling <laughs> is that Netflix has relied solely on, not solely, but like they're invested so much money in their own stuff, but the most popular things on their service are from other platforms or right. from other content providers. So they, right. they just spent millions of dollars to get Seinfeld once Seinfeld leaves Hulu. Ugh. So like that's a strange little world to be in and now there's just like in addition to Netflix you're going to have the new Disney Plus, you're going to have uh HBO Max, you're going to have NBC's streaming service, you can have the Warner streaming service. It's just endless so we're basically repackage everything to cable again. I'd like to remind yeah. our listeners that your library is still around. Use that more. <laughs> <laughs> I would also like to remind people of the library. Um, the library is great. Libraries are, I, I believe very, as a librarian, I believe very much in libraries. But we talk so much about the ephemerality of our current age. We don't own our media as much anymore. We don't own, phys- people aren't, you know, the idea of the physical book is, there was a lot of hand wringing about whether we were people were still buying the physical book and that proved to all be sort of bullshit um sorry i don't know if we can swear on this podcast but um yeah okay okay, calm down um sorry (laughs) but um yeah but i do think it's sort of a fallacy this idea that we um that we own anything anymore and this happens with ebooks you know, if you have a Kindle, this is a PSA. If you have a Kindle, they can take your ebooks off your Kindle whenever they want to. They being whoever, like whoever publishes them. They can change them, they can remove them. You do not own your ebooks. Yeah, I had you this just don't. I had this happen to me when iTunes started selling things. I was like, Oh, this is great. I'm this is how I'm gonna watch Breaking Bad because I don't have cable and this is how I'm gonna get caught up on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And then one day they were all gone. I don't have them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But I, we've talked about yeah. this on the show in the past, but I buy a lot of physical media. I still have movies. I buy records. Uh, I buy books. I buy comics. If I love something, I want to be able to go back to it, you know, and have it there yeah. for me. Yeah. I mean, I I do as well. Um, not as much with movies, but um, I when I moved to New Jersey, I got a car. My, I bought my first car. And I cannot, for the life of me, figure out 
how to hook my phone up to my car and make it play whatever through the speakers. It just, I can't seem to, anyway. So we've been listening to all of my CDs from high school. Like we have all of them in the car, which is a very weird trip to suddenly be listening to like CD mixes that boys I had crushes on were making me. (laughs) Um, It's, it's very weird. It's a very, it it suddenly we're back. It's like, well, what are we going to listen to in the car? And God, why would you listen to the radio? I guess, but the CDs, my CDs are all under my bed. (laughs) Yeah, I have, I have my CDs, but I don't have a, and this is kind of disappointing. I don't have a, my car doesn't have a CD player in it. I don't. Yeah. Think mine doesn't either. Yeah. I, Subaru, I, those Swedish. I listen, <laughs> I listen to records at home and I've already gotten made fun of for that uh, on a prior episode. So. <laughs> uh, oh, I listen to record. We have a record player too. <laughs> excellent. So I'm with you. Yeah. There's something about, I don't know, having yeah. it and looking at the artwork. And, and the ritual of it. Yeah. And... Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on our show, we uh, make recommendations based off of um, the topic of conversation. So Emma, uh, do you have any recommendations for anyone that wants to, that is for anyone that is interested in Shirley Jackson or or we have always lived in the castle? Yeah. I mean, I've already mentioned the um, Shirley Jackson, Rather Haunted Life by Ruth Franklin. It's a big book, but it's a beautifully written biography. It's um, I mean, she was, a, like I've said several times, she was a fascinating human, but I think that Franklin just does a really excellent job of weaving together both sort of the life of Shirley Jackson with critical analysis of her work. And and I actually listened to it on audiobook, so I would also plug renting audiobooks from your local library, which you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she just, she, her archival, the archival research that she's done is, that Franklin did is wonderful the it's so in-depth her writing is masterful I, I Shirley Jackson a rather haunted life by Ruth Franklin it's a great book I would also say haunting of Hill House if you enjoy this book your haunting of Hill House is considered by most to be a better book I think they're just very different I would recommend that and then I would also I would I plugged this earlier or I talked about this earlier but Angela Carter's a bloody chamber is a great collection of short stories that's very much the same vein. And if you're looking for a more updated version, a horror, a collection of short stories that's horror-based, that's really deals with queer horror and women's horror, I would say Carmen Maria Machado's The Bloody, or um, Her Body and Other Parties is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And she, she wrote a, one of the stories in there is called The Green Ribbon, which is a retelling of a classic horror story about a woman with a green ribbon around her neck. That is one of the most disturbing things I've ever read, but in a very, it, it's not gory, it's not overtly scary in the way you might think it is, but it is horrifying and I think speaks to some of the horrors of being a woman's woman in today's world in a way that's just really masterful. So those are the things I would plug. Those are a lot of things. That last one was actually my recommendation too. Yeah, that was. Oh yeah, oh, great. Oh, yeah. it's great. I have a copy. I'll loan it to you. Nice. That's the first interested. time that's it's happened so on the show. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's excellent. Oh wow. Uh, Sorry to steal that. Oh no, you. that's all right. It's, it's quite all right. No, that's great. Yeah, I wanted to to recommend Rebecca by oh, the yes. aforementioned uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, starring uh, Laurence Olivier and uh, Joan Fontaine. And this is another 
it's a gothic romance. Is it a ghost story? Is it not? It's definitely about the ghosts of our past. Uh, and it's great kind of uh, underrated Hitchcock that not a lot of people talk about. And I also wanted to recommend this movie called I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. And this is by Osgood Perkins. He is Anthony Perkins' son. He makes horror movies. Um, but they're usually less interested in plot and more interested in atmospherics and texture and noise on framing. And this is another, is this a ghost story, kind of haunted house kind of thing. Uh, it's pretty terrific. Uh, you could watch that on Netflix now. Uh, and uh, it's a slow burn. Uh, don't watch it if you're interested in fast-paced stuff. Or if you're looking for like traditional scares, but if you want something that's a little more uh, atmospheric, I highly recommend it. Emma, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Oh, sure. Um, so I am on Twitter at E-M-S-A-R-C-O-N-I. And that's, I have an Instagram, but it's sort of my personal Instagram. I might open it up at some point. But yeah, um, you can also email me, I guess, at uh, esarconi at princeton.edu. I can help you with your rare book needs. Um, <laughs> that's terrific. Yeah. So those are that's. But Twitter, Twitter is really the best place to find me. My, you can find my fiery takes on the world of rare book librarianship there mostly. Last question: Is there any validity to sure. the National Treasure movies? Oh, absolutely not. Um, Absolutely not. I, I watched that movie for the first time, like a year ago, like after I had started working at Princeton. Um, like I've been in the rare book game for a couple of years now, but this is my first sort of professional job. And, um, I was deeply horrified. Uh, please, please do not use lemon to try and take secret messages out of your, uh, old documents, it will do terrible things to them. Please don't do that. You heard it here. It's first. a bad idea. It's an exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, this is really. Thank you so much for having me. This yeah. is great. No problem. That was an awesome conversation. Yeah, it's nice having guests on the show. <laughs> it is. Yeah. At this point, we've been doing this. Oh, we started what in January? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of picking at it when we had time and could cobble together a studio before we found our actual home to record. But now we've sort of figured out our rhythms and bringing on guests has been a lot of fun. Uh, that was that was such a such a wonderful conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book uh, and, and I plan to to read some more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I definitely um, have some other things I kind of want to. The downside to doing the show is that I always have more things to add on to the the pile to to watch or read next. never ends never ends but um no this is definitely not going to be the the last i read of shirley jackson this has been it was a lot of fun what are we talking about next time next time we are going to be discussing the cabinet of dr caligari which is a silent film from 1929 1920 wow yeah i wasn't even born yet uh i was <laughs> i was two years old to go back to your confusing we have always lived in the castle with what we do in the shadows i've been confusing the cabinet of dr caligari with the castle of cagliostro yeah (laughs) i think uh did we did i confuse that on mike when we talked about this at 1.2 but yeah i do the same thing that um cagliostro is uh that's 
an anime. Yeah, um, Miyazaki. It's Miyazaki's it's first, first movie. Uh, first movie. Yeah. Um, which I also haven't seen. It's it's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun caper, and it's pretty different from a lot of his other movies because there's an existing property. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how he had gotten his start. He's working on the television show version of this character, Lupin the Third, who's like this kind of feisty uh, thief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has a couple of cohorts that he travels around with, and they get into various adventures slash mishaps. And uh, uh, the movie's a lot of fun. I, I recommend it if you're a Miyazaki fan. But Caligari, <laughs> uh, which is silent film, horror movie, classic, very influential, um, have you watched a lot of silent films? I have not. And to be perfectly honest, I know nothing about this movie besides the title. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, I All I know is that it's uh, part of German expressionism, uh, and there's a lot of um, influential photography within the movie. Yeah. I've watched some uh, silent films, a few silent horror films, but we'll get into a lot of that next episode. But I'm pretty excited to watch it because this is a pretty big blind spot for me Especially when it comes to horror films, which I've seen, I would say, the majority of all the ones that are You've considered. You've seen all but this one. The majority of ones that are considered influential or... Oh, there we go. Now we're talking about canon again. Back to the canon again. Yes. Um, but I have seen uh, a lot of horror films. So oh, nice. this is a big blind spot, and I'm excited to finally cross that off the yeah, list. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a fun one. Great. Uh, thanks again to Emma. We're happy to have her, and uh, yeah, I'd love to have her back on to, to talk about more stuff. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Great. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? You can find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us on social media at What Did We Miss on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And thanks, as always, to the What's Your Writers Club in downtown Providence. You can find out more about them at whatcheerclub.org and follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub. Bow. Wah, 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 wah.